Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 195 with Michael Nicholas. Michael is talking decision-making, and you're going to walk away learning one, the tremendous power of continually making the optimal decision, two, the science behind how we make decisions, three, keys to improving your decision-making. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep195. Now, here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am excited to be talking about decision-making with you. And and you'd mentioned that in your own life of career and decision-making, you had a bit of a flip-flop. What's the story there? Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things about our decisions is that we tend to think of ourselves as rational, don't we? So some of our most difficult decisions, we like to do these pros and cons lists and make this decision that seems to be explainable and make sense. And I, I like to think back to when I was at school and I had some career advice from an advisor that came into the school who seemed to think that I was well suited to be a teacher. And I've got to say that was as diametrically opposite to our plan for my life. And I say our plan deliberately, which I'll explain in a moment. As, as it really could have been, and uh, seemed ridiculous, to be quite honest. And I went on to be an engineer like my father. I did many things like my father, actually. Um, and, and it all made sense. And it was only about 25 years later that I finally left my engineering career to become essentially a teacher, running workshops and doing coaching and writing books. And uh, the sort of irony of it struck me afterwards, because what felt like logical and sensible actually was clearly emotional in nature. And it was based on a set of expectations that we hadn't really examined. Hmm. Yeah. Expectations from your father or family or for yourself to be like him or what do you mean? Well, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because (laughs) these things are unconscious and that's the nature of it. And I expect we'll go into that in some detail on this call, the nature of how we get beyond some of these unconscious patterns. But My dad was uh, in a technical field. He worked for IBM for 28 years, and uh, I admired him and probably wanted to be like him, and that probably seemed like a good option. I was studying sciences, and so it all made sense, logically. And yet, somehow, it seems this career advisor saw something different in me based on some answers I gave, which were probably about what my interests were and what I enjoyed doing. And those were completely dismissed by the <laughs> expectation that we'd collectively somehow set. Yeah, intriguing. Well, yes, I do want to dig into this. And so maybe frame it up for us from the very beginning. What is your book here, The Little Black Box of Decision Making, all about? Yeah, well, The Little Black Book of Decision Making is probably slightly misleading because it's not very little, actually, although it's a little format. Um, the... What I've tried to do with the book is to address a modern challenge of decision-making. Because if we look at how decision-making has evolved over the last 300 years or so, we've become more and more rational, logical. And that's the kind of accepted approach. And very often when people talk about intuition, it's like 
you know, they feel this gut feel, but they know when it comes to business decisions and stuff like that, that we have to have a rational, logical explanation. So the question is, which should I trust? And even if you go to a reputable source like the Harvard Business Review, what you find is there's an article one month, which will be something like learn to trust your gut. And then there'll be another month which will say, don't trust your gut. Yeah. <laughs> and so we see this rational, logical debate. Um, the rational, logical versus the intuitive debate everywhere. And one of the things, there must be a common ground. You know, there must be somewhere a middle ground where both of these arguments are valid. And then it's about applicability and appropriateness. So we can know which to apply and when to make more appropriate, more reliable and, uh, you know, more solid decisions more often. Oh, I like that. I like that. And so if it's not already immediately clear, can you share why is that important? Why is making the optimal decision more frequently matter? Well, to think of an area of your life that's not affected by the quality of decisions you make. Mm -hmm. Whatever we have st spent our life studying our ability to apply those skills or that knowledge or that experience effectively will come down to our decision-making. And now, especially a lot of the softer aspects of our decision-making that we might call our judgments. You know, those moment-by-moment -moment decisions that we make, we probably make thousands of decisions every day of, from, from very small to very big, many of them without even, to, even stopping to really consider it as a decision. It's like an automatic program that runs to enable us to handle a certain situation. And depending on the quality of our programming, therefore, we, we will make decisions which we may well not really investigate to work out whether they're getting us the results that we're looking for. Oh, I love, I love the way you phrase that, the automatic programming. I'm thinking of like, there have been so many times in life where, you know, I had to fly out for a, you know, a client or a speaking engagement or training or something. And then I take a look at the clock and I just have this really weird window of time. It's like, huh, I've got three hours here before I can check into my hotel or before I need to go be in the airplane or, or I'm doing like a weird transfer. And I think to myself, why on earth is this my travel plan? Why did I do this? And I'm thinking, it's like, you probably saved a hundred bucks on a flight somewhere, Pete, because <laughs> you're automatically going, the cheapest flight is best. <laughs> you know, that programming is just in there. Yeah. And I'd rather have the hundred bucks out of my bank account and just have the schedule that made great sense. So I can, you know, use those hours for, you know, more meaningful client work or intellectual property development, or just being with friends and family. Absolutely. And, and it'll affect your food choices, your, your health choices, yeah. your choices, your, <laughs> your choice of friends where you like to hang out, the whole lot. Oh boy, so that's powerful. Well, then lay it out for us. We got the reason perspective, you know, logic, data-driven goodness, and then we've got the intuition side. So, you know, one way to make the choice for which way wins out is, I guess, which issue of the Harvard Business Review you're reading that month, but yeah. what's your recommended approach to navigate those two different sides of things? So not lots of people think issue, but there was a very famous study that was done by a guy called Philip Tetlock, where he looked at the ability of experts to make predictions in environments of uncertainty. And the reason this is important, of course, is because our predictions form the basis of most of our decisions. Okay. One of the things that we've realized in psychology over the last 30 or so years is that we don't actually base our decisions on what's happening now. What we do is we use what's happening now 
um, to project forward and try and work out what we think is likely to happen next. And it's that, therefore, it's that prediction of what will happen next that we use to make our decision. And mostly, of course, that's happening incredibly quickly in our unconscious brain. But when we're looking at something like a business decision that might involve some sort of analysis, Tetlock looked at the ability of experts to do accurate predictions. And his sort of high-level summary caught a lot of attention because of the way he phrased it, which was that he said, the average expert is slightly less good than a dart-throwing chimpanzee. (laughs) Which is quite surprising when you see the number of times that experts are interviewed, ask ask for their opinion about what's likely to happen next. And, you know, there was a really big event in the UK recently which summarised this whole discussion, which was our vote on whether or not to stay in the European Union. And when you look at that, everyone in the country got to make a decision about what they thought was going to be the best. And both sides of the debate were presenting their arguments for why their side was likely to work out better, as though they actually knew what was going to happen. (laughs) And then people made a decision. But of course, those decisions weren't really rational. They were very strongly emotional, as became clear the next day when people talked about why they made the decision they made. And what's now become even clearer is those supposed experts who were telling us about the pros and cons of either side of that debate really had no clue, especially the people who recommending we come out. They knew nothing about what it would mean for us to leave the EU. So basically, people have made an emotional decision under the guise of a series of experts trying to present a picture which was made up because they didn't know. And that is the environment that we are now facing more and more as the pace of change in the world increases. The level of ambiguity and uncertainty is increasing all the time, and it's changing the fundamental nature of the way we need to approach decision-making. And that's the kind of foundation upon which I've built the book. Well, yeah, it's a spooky place to be in terms of that and feeling good about any decision that you make. So what should be some of our our step-by-steps in terms of getting to good decisions with higher probability? Well, the first thing to recognize is when our old form of decision-making that we're probably conditioned to use. So we talked a little bit about conditioning. We're conditioned from when we went to school to be rational, logical in the way we approach decision-making, even though we're not rational and logical as human beings. And neuroscience has clearly demonstrated that our emotional brain is always engaged in every rational decision that we make. But we like to think of ourselves as rational, not affected by these things. But the, the first question really is, to what degree will the past enable you to predict the future? Mm-hmm. And it's, you can see a lot of environments where there is a sort of stability and there's a level of repeatability that means if we do X, we're quite likely to get Y. And, and then a slightly higher level of complexity where we can see that there are trade-offs, but an expert will start to understand how to use their skills to predict outcomes, even with large numbers of variables and trade-offs involved. And then we cross this critical line where we actually need hindsight in order to understand what was going on. So data will explain why something happened in the past, but it won't enable us to predict it in advance. And it's that line that's the critical line, because when you cross that line, you can't use the classical left-brained rational decision-making approach anymore. 
you have to start to use a different approach. And that's a lot of what the book is about. And essentially, it's a it's an approach based on creativity. Hmm. Because we're stepping into something new and unknown. And so the old won't work very well. So we need something new. Well, that's very, very intriguing. And I guess, I don't know, I've had those moments where I'm in the zone in terms of I just have this sense for what's going to happen and it happens and it feels awesome <laughs> in, terms, in terms of, you know, I just feel so brilliant and astute and perceptive, but I, maybe I just got lucky. I don't know. <laughs> and so then that is quite intriguing. That's a great rule of thumb is to just take a critical eye toward, you know, to what degree, you know, do we think the past events will be predictive yeah. of the future events and to note where data has its, I guess, end point of usefulness. So that are there some key rules of thumb to assess or assert, hmm, you know, this looks like a highly volatile, unpredictable space as opposed to a predictable space? I'm not sure there's a rule of thumb you could apply because it's going to be one of those things where you learn by experience. You know, this is what the nature of intuition is about. It's like, there's this things that you don't know that you know that you've picked up through your life give you a feeling for what's happening. And the question is, to what degree do you trust that? But to even be asking the question, the key is that we have to start to be able to interrupt our automatic processes, the automatic decisions that we're making, that we unconsciously assume will continue to serve us. And to do that, we have to bring a higher level of awareness into the choices that we're making. So that's if there's a rule of thumb, that's where it's heading. It's, it's starting to take the attention from those externals to our internals so we can start to look at, well, why am I looking at it the way I'm looking at it? And is that still appropriate under the circumstances or has something changed? And this is phenomenally hard to do. I've given a couple of examples in the book of how people, even people who spend their life focusing on something, will get completely sidelined by change and not really notice the significance of it until someone else comes along and wakes them up. Oh, please share one. Yeah. So, well, one of the, a great example of this actually is what Dick Fosbury did at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico. And of course, he's had his particular technique now named after him, which is the Fosbury flop. And he turned up at the Olympics and went over the bar backwards instead of the technique of the day, which was called the Western straddle, where people led with a leg and rolled over facing downwards across the bar. And the initial reaction of the crowds was to laugh at him. But that stopped quite quickly when he won. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about this, if you actually delve into it, was that Fosbury, he didn't really plan this approach. It sort of emerged because he wasn't a very good high jumper. And he, he'd actually chosen the high jump because he wasn't actually a very good athlete and he wanted to do something. <laughs> but at high school, he couldn't even make the qualifying heights in, in some of the competitions. And he turned up at a competition with his best jump at five foot three. And he was six foot four. So that wasn't massively good. And already the bar was above his personal best. And he just kind of knew he had to do something different. So he went across the bar backwards and it worked. So you kind of think logically, hey, you'd, you'd think you might be onto something. I'll go away and practice that. But because it broke the mold and broke the conventional wisdom of the day, he and the coaches decided in practice he should continue practicing the Western straddle. Hmm. And then 
he would just use his flop in competition because he couldn't compete using the straddle. And eventually his coach videoed him and videoed him and saw him clear the bar by six inches and thought, hmm, there must be something in this. And that was when he started practicing it. But it's a good example of this old phrase that necessity is the mother of invention, that mostly we'll only start to get creative and think of new ways to do old things when we have to. And essentially what I'm saying is the challenge of the modern age is to start to do that proactively. So before we have to, we will start to challenge our conventional wisdom and the way we've always done things in the hope that we can come up with something new that will give us an advantage. Because if we don't, the chances are someone else will because technology is increasing so fast and pace of change is increasing and the ability of others to compete with low barriers to entry is increasing and all manner of variables which mean that we're all facing an environment in which change is happening much more quickly. So we have to respond in our decision making. Okay. And so that notion of challenging yourself before you have to, I'd love it. I mean, I think that's just sort of deep inside our nervous systems or something in terms of call it entropy or conservation of energy or, or something. It's like, well, we don't want to expend all of that effort and yeah. energy. If it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. So are there any, you know, cool tips and tricks for putting a little bit of a forcing function on that to get it going earlier? Well, there's classically psychology view that there's two reasons why we change. And one is that we want something enough to motivate us to do something new. And the other is that the current environment becomes sufficiently painful that we're forced into it. And unfortunately, the second of those is more powerful. So you can see this clearly just through observation that most people are reluctant to change until they have to. But what we're saying here is that you have to start to want it enough. And we can generate these things in our mind potentially by challenging ourselves to realize the consequences of not change. Because there's an old saying, I've asked thousands of people this question, if you always do what you've always done, um, what happens? And people will say, well, you always get what you always got. And I've, I've had that repeated back to me literally thousands of times. But the problem is it's actually not true because it's only true under the circumstance that nothing else is. And nobody I've ever spoken to would say nothing's changing. Mm-hmm. So the, if we always do what we've always done, we're actually going backwards to the exact degree that the environment is progressing. And so if we're not in pain yet, we will be soon. And things can catch up with us and we suddenly realize we've become irrelevant. Uh, Our business has been surpassed or made irrelevant and we've not even necessarily realized it's happening until too late. And I think if you, the reflection on those sorts of issues can motivate people to be much more alert, to think about being more creative, bringing innovation into what they're doing. Okay, yes. And so you're saying then that simply by looking at the facts or case studies or illustrations that point to it all hitting the fan (laughs) because folks were kind of business as usual when they shouldn't have been is a good way to, I guess, productively freak yourself out and do something about it. Yeah, essentially, because you've got to create the motivation in your mind. And when you find successful people, you'll find this is what they do. You know, the people who are creative, they, they're not creative immediately. They're creative after much effort. So tenacity is one of the key requirements for people to actually produce meaningful and useful good ideas. And we can the setbacks to overcome the disappointments. 
and the multiple repeats that's normally necessary to come up with something new. And where does that tenacity come from? Well, it essentially comes from wanting it enough. Mm-hmm. How do you create that? Well, you've got to create it inside out. Nobody can give that to you. And so we're in a world where, from a, a leadership perspective, the in the old world, you could get the basic productivity that was necessary to deliver results by essentially demanding compliance of people. But we're in a world now where we need discretionary effort. We need people's effort and commitment to do the best they can do and bring their value. And for that, the rules have to change. And we're trying to inspire people from the inside out as opposed to telling them what to do in outside in. Mm-hmm. And that makes a world of difference. And so, yes, tell us with this inside out challenge you've got cooking. What's that about? Well, the reason I talk about the inside out challenge is because our highest capabilities actually come from our unconscious brain, if you think about it. So anything that anybody is highly skilled in, they become skilled in it by training their brain to do it automatically so it feels relatively effortless. And if you see people who are performing at the very highest levels, typically they will require less effort to do so than a novice would to do the same thing badly. Um, Think about a, a learner learning to drive a car. Mm-hmm. And the effort it takes to drive that car. And then you think about the world champion motor racing driver, and he probably requires a lot less effort to drive, apart from at the very highest level, to drive at a much higher level because his brain has been trained to do that. And the way that works is through a process of repetition. So, what fires together, wires together is a, a sort of mantra for neuroscience that. Every time we fire a circuit, pattern of circuits in our brain, those circuits then fire more easily the next time. And so we need to be firing the circuits that help us with decision making so that our decision making will start to become more automatic. Because the problem is that much of what we've learned to do may be flawed, but we won't actually know it because there's no warning signal when we get it wrong. And this is one of the essential Challenges. If you think about your decisions, when you make a decision, you make a decision because it feels right. Mm-hmm. And it's only later you realize that it was wrong. And so essentially that decision feels right even when it's wrong. So a good decision feels the same as a bad decision, in other words. And that's because our unconscious mind is programmed that way. So we have to learn to change the way that those deeper factors of our mind are programmed in order to enable more effortless but better decision making just the same as if we wanted to improve our tennis forehand we'd have to practice a new swing until it became automatic and we're going to have to do the same thing with our decision making well so then i guess i'm not quite clear yet then on how do we get the connection you know between oh that's a good decision keep it up versus oh that was a bad decision let's tweak it Well, yeah. And for that, we need awareness, don't we, Pete? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about increasing awareness. So the journey here is a journey which takes us from essentially unconsciousness. We make a decision automatically to a place of awareness where we start to understand that we're doing something that may not be optimized to a place of self-awareness where we start to understand why we've made that decision. And that's what then gives us the ability to make changes. And I think it would probably be quite useful if I gave an illustration of this. All right. Because I know that it's a concept that uh, there's quite a lot of concepts I talk about, which probably aren't common language because we're trying to do something. We're trying to develop a 
an approach to decision making, which isn't the norm, but which I'm suggesting is going to have to become the norm for people that want to considerably add value in the future. So this was actually an example of a client of mine, a coaching client, and uh, I'll call her Susan, just uh, for anonymity. And she approached me for help because she'd successfully turned around a business. She'd been growing the business. She'd been taking on more direct reports, more staff. The business had doubled in size in two years. And essentially, the challenge she was facing was it was requiring more and more of her time. So she approached me and she said, you know, I need some help because it's time management, really, so that my diary isn't starting to encroach on my home life so much. And you know, I, I kind of wanted to say to her, well, that's maybe not as simple as you think it is. But you can't say that, can you? You have to take people through a process of self-realization. So this is the inside out nature. One of the first questions I asked her, obviously, was around delegation and how well you, um, you're you authorizing, giving authority to your staff and giving them responsibility for taking on your work. And she had a belief that she was very good at this. So you ask questions around this for quite a while and there's no no real answers coming out. You know, she's she's a bit stuck in this mindset that the problem is a problem relating to time. And eventually, to try to unpeel it, I asked if we could just take a look through her diary to see if there were any patterns I could recognise which she couldn't recognise. So at this point, she's clearly unconscious. She knows she's got a problem, but she doesn't know what's causing it. And when I started to look through the diary, there were more meetings with direct reports than you'd expect. Hmm. So I just said to her, well, why have you got so many meetings with your direct reports? And she said, because they like to review decisions with me before they make them. Okay. Hmm. So now as a coach, I'm sure you know this, that you you would test that, but not not challenge it um, from the place of I don't believe. You're just going to test it. So I said to her, well, if that's true, then the suggestion would be if you went on holiday for, say, two weeks, you don't become a bottleneck. This would be something where they would carry on without you. Is that true? And then we had this very long pause. And the next words out of her mouth were, if I do what you're suggesting. <laughs> well, I hadn't suggested anything, clearly. I just asked. <laughs> but, but she said, if I do what you're suggesting, what does the business need me for? All right. So... There's a bit of an assumption I have to make now about what happened, but I'm assuming that pretty quickly she went through a period of awareness. Okay, I'm not delegating as well as I thought because I'm clearly not actually delegating authority for these decisions because whilst I believe I have, I'm not actually happy for them to make the decision when I'm not here. So she's she's gone from unconsciousness, I didn't realize this was a problem, to awareness. Now I know there's a problem. And quite quickly, just in her own mind, without even interacting with me, she started to question, well, why am I not happy? And the conclusion she reached changed her life, literally, because this idea, if I do what you're suggesting, what does the business need me for? She now realized that the reason she wanted to be involved in their decisions was because that was how she demonstrated her value to the business. Right. So it was going to be, we could have talked about time management forever. And she would have continued to make the same decisions about the way she did that because it was being driven by a much deeper need or value, which was the desire to demonstrate her value and her contribution to the business. And once we knew that, we were able to talk about what she could do that would be more valuable than any of that. And 
then she would automatically go and do those things. So her behavior switched and the decisions she made on a daily basis about how to use her time switched. Once she had the self-awareness to understand why she was making the old decision. And so that's why we need to make this journey from unconsciousness through awareness and into self-awareness about the, the, the type of decisions and the nature of the decisions and what's, what's actually driving it. And then we, and that's why I describe it as an inside out challenge. I see. I see. And so then I'd love then before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things to hear some of your most kind of hard hitting tips and tactics to do just that, whether that's accelerating the journey to awareness, to, you know, getting clearer on what's going on deep down to, minimize the risks of bias? You know, what are some of your go-to prescriptions? Yeah. Well, the key to this is, is being able to direct attention. So when we look at what actually we need to change, the heart of it is what I call intentional attention, the ability to direct our attention in a way that we can consciously control. And that turns out to be a flexible skill and something that's trainable. And the more we practice it, like anything else we practice, the better we get at it. And we need to do this for a whole host of reasons, because if we're going to become creative, one of the things we have to do is become more relaxed. Because if you think about it, I've asked, again, hundreds of people this question, when do you have your best creative ideas? And nobody said when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. Nobody said you're relaxing in the bath or 4 a.m. when I wake up and I'm relaxed and these ideas pop out. So we have to be able to deal with our stressors because that stress is the time when we're most likely to pull on an old reactive pattern. And to do that, we have to start to be able to look at the, why we see things the way we see them. So we have to be able to give our attention to where our mind is directed. And this is the intentional attention. And the brain is the, we're it's a very exciting time actually for studying this particular area because we're learning a lot about how how the brain works and what's happening in the brain when when we start to focus attention deliberately and it turns out we activate a particular part of the brain just behind the forehead which is called the prefrontal cortex and this is the part that's responsible for just about all of our higher human capabilities like our ability to empathize our self-awareness our decision-making, um, our ability to regulate our, even to understand our emotions and then to regulate our emotions. And when we direct attention consciously, we develop the part of the brain that does that. And at the same time, we suppress the part of the brain that causes stress and triggers us into our reactive patterns. So the question then becomes quite a simple one, which is how do we practice the ability to focus attention with intention. And this is this inside out transformation that I've been talking about so that we can um, increase our levels of self-awareness, avoid our, not avoid completely, but start to become much more aware of how our reactive patterns and our automatic, the automatic nature of our programming is taking us down certain paths. And there's a name that is commonly used for that type of focusing of attention, the practice of focusing attention. And the old name for it is meditation. And meditation has long been associated with religion, but it's actually nothing to do with religion. It's a, a practice of focusing the mind deliberately on a certain point. 
And what it creates is one of the biggest buzzwords around uh, business, I think, in general right now. I'm sure you've probably had someone on who's talked about it, which is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness being the ability to have a present moment awareness that's relaxed and open, flexible and creative and non-judgmental. And we can practice that deliberately and hone it and develop it in a conscious way. And when we do that, we there are all sorts of benefits which you know we simply don't have the time to talk through the detail of it now. There's a, there's quite a lot of it in the in my book. I've I can I've explained to people the value in terms of changes that take place in the brain when we practice focusing with our attention with intention, and it creates numerous shifts. It makes it more effortless to focus attention, and it makes us less distractible. So that in this world of multiple distractions where we're getting information from all directions, we become better able to focus our attention and hold it focused and to do that with less effort. And when you do all those things, your decision making is going to improve for certain. And it's going to improve because the changes in the brain are changes that will do that or that make that automatic. So it's not something you have to actually try to do. It's more like something that you would try to be. So the best practice is actually one of um, essentially creating rewiring of the brain so that we automatically will make better decisions um, and have a lot more fun doing it as well because we'll feel a lot more relaxed and open in the process. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, well, there's a couple of quotes that that relate to what we've been talking about. And the first is a quote from Carl Jung, I'm sure you've heard of, the the esteemed psychologist, who said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we'll call it fate. Mm. Which refers to these how these patterns just produce results in our lives and we may not be aware of it. And the second one relates to the way that we create our perceptions because we see the world a certain way and we, we won't necessarily understand that. And there's a chapter in the book I've called The Reality Delusion to point to the fact that we don't really recognize what's out there because we see what we are. And there's a lovely Sufi saying which encapsulates that, which is when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are pockets. Mm, that's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? I've got so many, I really struggled with this question, Pete. I've got so many favorite books. Um, I, I think I probably go for some Eckhart Tolle books in terms of the power of presence to transform your experience, the power of now and a new earth um, are such great books on this subject. But if we just wanted to talk about becoming comfortable with ambiguity and learning to recognize maybe the world isn't the way we thought it is, which is a foundational requirement for handling ambiguity effectively. Um, There's a book called The Field by a lady called Lynn McTaggart, which I absolutely love because it it challenges so many models and understandings about how the world works. Oh, great. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Well, I have to say mindfulness on this, don't I? Um, Or or meditation. The the, the tool of being present, present moment awareness and bringing yourself into the present by inserting a pause because the more the world speeds up, the more important it becomes that we slow down. And so if if we find that we're sort of getting slightly carried away, I think the value of being able to take maybe just three breaths consciously 
neuroscience has shown will allow our brain time to reorganize so that we can balance that rational intuitive better. So that that idea of just, just taking a pause to take three conscious breaths and be aware of the breath is incredibly powerful. Ooh, indeed, thank you. And is there a particular nugget that you share in your workshops or your writing that seems to really connect and resonate with people, getting them nodding their heads and taking notes? Yeah, I think I love this idea. I think it originally came from Einstein, who says something like the most important question we can ever answer is whether the basic nature of the universe is friendly or hostile. And that really caught my attention when I first read it, um, because I didn't understand it, basically, I think, years ago when I first saw it. And it it intrigued me enough. I kept thinking about it. And now I kind of think it's true because it relates this idea that the world is nothing until we make it something through our perceptions. So the world, nothing's good or bad, but thinking makes it so is what Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet. And whether we see the world as friendly or hostile will determine how much stress we experience and how creative we'll be able to be. And that comes down to our perceptions and we can learn to tr- to retrain our perceptions to shift our experience of reality and when we do that we can totally transform our ability to handle all manner of situations that's cool and if folks want to learn more and get in touch with you where would you point them well initially obviously i would point them to the book we've been talking about the little black book of decision making um otherwise to my website michaelnicholas.com and if they wanted to connect with me that way and and hopefully receive sources of inspiration and stuff from me that would be great okay and if you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs what would it be well when i present the sort of information we've been talking about here one of the most common responses i get is well i'm just not creative and i want to say to everybody that's not true you may have conditioned yourself to focus automatically on something on another direction or another area of strength of your brain. But we all have the capacity to be creative and it will start to happen automatically if we develop the underlying mental traits that are necessary, which are basically this tenacity I mentioned earlier and an openness to new ideas and a willingness to tune into and recognize our intuitive feelings and the the messages from our intuition. Mm. And we all have that capability. Oh, that's great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking this time. That's so cool. I wish you lots of luck with the book and all your workshops and, and all your upcoming adventures. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Pete. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Boy, this mindfulness stuff keeps popping up again and again, huh? It seems to be a striking recurring theme from many, many guests. So Again, I was struck and I was digging how Michael was saying that we need to take time to proactively focus and practice our abilities to put that attention to something with intention. And it just makes sense that if it's your breath or your counting or some sort of mindfulness exercise, that is a wise move. And I think it's easy for it to slip away in terms of we're interested in the new thing, the new urgent, interesting tidbit, what's up on Facebook or your social media app of choice or your distraction, the phone, while bored, waiting in line, you just go right to a hit of stimulation as opposed to focusing on on what's there. So I think that does make a difference. I feel myself getting mentally fit or flabby with regard to this focusing attention with intention stuff. So just a helpful reminder for me and hopefully for you about that point there. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, 
It's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep195. And I do hope you'll push subscribe so you'll hear from folks like our next guest. It's Stacey Hunky. She's talking about having the presence and bringing that forward. And speaking of bringing things forward, I'd like for you to bring forward your favorite ways you're using Text Expander. Do you love those segues? <laughs> I have fun coming up with them. But I'm a true believer and a true fan. So at that same page there, awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep195. You could hit me up via email, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com anytime. I am a little behind because we just bought a house. Yay. And that's been a lot. So, but they're there in the inbox and they will receive my attention sooner or later. I care. I'm listening. Holler at me and I hope to catch you for the next one. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 